Second Peter chapter 3, starting at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the uh, truths that are contained that are sufficient to guide us as pilgrims through this land. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would open hearts to receive it with, with faith. And we pray that you give me wisdom to speak it faithfully and in all things be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So our text this morning is uh, our verses 11 through 13. And uh, out of this text, I have three points to bring out. So the first point is a holy response. The second point is a hastening response. And the third point is an expectant response. So a holy response, a hastening response, and an expectant response. So first of all, the first point being a holy response. That's verse 11 that we read there. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be? in all holy conversation and godliness. Now, last time, if you remember, when we were looking at verse 10, we saw that the day of the Lord, that final day, will surely come. And it will come because of the sinfulness of man and how he worships the things of earth. We saw the the earth and the works therein and turns it into idols. And he also worships the heavens and the elements of the heavens, which are the sun, moon, and the stars, And what does man do with the sun, moon, and stars? He worships them and looks to call upon the supernatural powers. And therefore, God's day of judgment will come and it will burn up everything. Now the word that we see in verse 11 here when it says, shall be dissolved in the Greek is in the present tense, which means it's an action that has already been set in motion and is now working towards the final undoing. And at some level we see this because the earth is decaying and um, entropy, to use a scientific term, is at some level happening. Now it is from that reality that Peter says, as he opens this, this verse, he says, seeing then, and the idea is consequently or therefore, because the day of the Lord will come, therefore do this and that. You see, If you believe in the day of the Lord, as we ought to, as the Bible teaches us, we ought to consequently live a certain way. It has a consequence. We can't just acknowledge the future return of Christ, the apocalypse, and not let it shape our lives. That would be silly. Ideas have consequences. And remember that whatever you think, whatever you believe, has a consequence as to how you then will live. And if you don't believe in the coming of Jesus Christ, you're not going to live accordingly. Let's be honest. And so Peter says the consequent that ought to be is a certain manner of person. Now the word there for what manner of person, what manner is literally from what country then ought you to live? You must show yourself then as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven from a noble country and someone who lives accordingly. 
So the question of how now shall we live has been asked throughout history. There there are books that are called how now shall we live or how then shall we live. Now remember the scoffers, they had a theology too. They denied the coming of the Lord and they said, he's not coming, where's the promise of his return? And then Peter says and explains how they lived. Remember what he says in verse 3? He says, they walk after their own lusts. They do whatever they want because if Jesus isn't coming back, You might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. Make the most of it. It's over soon. So how do we respond to the day of the Lord? You see, our standards as believers, as professing believers, have to come from above, not from below. We need the Lordship of Christ and His kingdom to be daily pressed into the mold of our earthbound minds because we will naturally gravitate again to the things of the earth, won't we? You have to be intentional in that. It's not just osmosis. It has to be done with vigor. It has to be done with intentionality and purpose. Because we need to be torn from hanging on to those things that will be shortly torn from us, don't we? So notice Peter. Peter uses a very strong word here in the original. You ought to be this way. He says necessity, as it were, governs our conduct. This is not a matter of if. This is a matter of obligation. Now, perhaps we've been working through this whole concept of the day of the Lord. Perhaps it has made you somewhat uncomfortable if you think about that great day. And it ought to, at some level, make us uncomfortable because it is an incredible day that lies before us. It is a dark day. But we should learn from the reality of that discomfort and of the reality of what that day will bring. We should learn from its truth. Do we prepare for it humbly? Remembering we are but dust. Are we not to be driven because of that day to our knees more? Do you pray for that day? Do you pray for lost ones? Should it not also encourage us to encourage one another to press on unto holiness, without which no man shall see God? But we also know as believers that the darkness of that day will be dwarfed by the light of the glory of Jesus Christ that will be displayed on that day. And that is our great hope, isn't it? And it is from all these obligations and these meditations on the day of the Lord that Peter then says very practically, you ought to be holy or to to live in holy conversation and godliness. Now that word conversation, that's an old approach to the word. Uh, modern translation would say your conduct, holy conduct. Um, and so... Our proper response to the day of the Lord is a life of holiness, a life characterized by godliness. You think about that word godliness. We have a culture that is driven by me, conforming to my standards. Christians ought to be conforming to God's standards. We ought to ask, what does God want? Do we do that? Do you actually do that? When you pray, Lord, what would you have me to do? Both the words conversation or conduct and godliness in the original are in the plural, not singular, which is kind of interesting because it stresses every aspect of our conversation or conduct and our lives ought to be holy. Not just when people are watching, which is what we tend to do, right? We want to look good for each other and we fail to want to look good when only God is watching. R.C. Sproul often would say we live coram Deo in the presence of God. 
Our thinking even should not drift into entertaining wicked thoughts of lust and jealousy and malice. Do you actually intentionally guard your mind? The only entity no one else can see. Right? People try to extract through torture sometimes what is in someone's mind, but God doesn't need that. He sees the all-seeing eye of God's omniscience, knows your thoughts. He knows what you're thinking right now. But if it's referring here in the plural to all areas of life, you have to think almost of a tree. Have you ever seen a tree where you look at it and there's some dead branches coming off and there's a few green ones, but the tree is mixed. Not every branch is alive. Not every branch is bearing fruit and has leaves. And the appearance of such a tree betrays the state of the tree, doesn't it? It's not flourishing, that kind of a tree. And so every branch of the Christian life ought to be bearing fruit. And if some branches of our lives are not bearing fruit, we are not flourishing as we ought to be flourishing. Now, perhaps there are particular parts of your life that are shriveling right now. Perhaps they're not thriving in godliness. And take inventory for a minute and think about yourself. Perhaps it's at work. Perhaps you're good at home, but at work, you're rude to your co-workers. You're insubordinate. You have no interest in cleaning up foul language because after all, I'm just with the guys. That's not right. Every branch. Perhaps it's your marriage. You shine with a big smile here on Sunday morning, but your spouse will often not get a smile, but will get a scowl or an eye roll. You know, today being Father's Day is another point of reflection, another branch we ought to look at. Dads, fathers among us, are you parenting with Christ-like love and humility? Do your children come to you for spiritual counsel? Or they never have even thought of doing that. Have you set that standard in your home that the father is the leader and the provider and the protector of the home? Fathers, are you willing to learn biblical principles? This one thing that we often disregard in our culture and in our parenting is to not just take what we saw from our parents and learn from their mistakes and from their blessings, but learn from others. Seek the counsel of godly men in the church, fathers, and learn from them and others as well. One day your children will leave your home. How are you preparing your children for that time? What about the branch of leisure time? Is uh, YouTube your addiction when you have extra time? Are you a news junkie? Are you consumed with Facebook, Instagram, Perhaps it's sports. All you care about is watching the next game or playing the next game. Hobbies can easily turn into idols. Grandkids can even become personal trophies that you treasure so much that you disregard the word of God. What about your purchases? Let our purchases also be a branch that is moderated by the day of the Lord and eternal perspective. Have you asked yourself, what is most precious to me? Is it your bank account? Is it the state of your home and how well it looks? That everything is manicured wellly? well? One commentator said this. He said, how poorly it will be with us if nothing we have is fireproof. Probably another branch that is often dying, doesn't flourish well, is how we take criticism. When we are exhorted... Do we dig in our heels? 
Or do we take that time to be introspective, to ask ourselves, yeah, you know what, I do need to learn here. Are you really interested in ridding yourself of the idols that have the strongest grip in your life? I remember when I wrote that, I had to really think about that for myself. Am I really interested in ridding myself of those idols that have the strongest grip in my life? Am I willing to go to war against those idols? Or do we only say this, and I can say it this morning, to look good? You see, God will have no competitors in the heart of those who love him and fear him. Oh, let us be actively seeking the means of grace, praying, watching, reading the word, fellowshipping with one another, serving, admonishing one another, living soberly and wisely, guarding against pride and selfishness. You see, this is very practical to think of the coming of the day of the Lord and the necessity it drives us to. William Burkett, one of the ancient writers from the 1600s, he said this, and I think it's very insightful to keep before us. He said, heaven is a holy place. It has holy company, holy employments, holy enjoyments. We must be qualified it before we can be admitted into it and begin that life of holiness on earth, which will never end in heaven. Without a present fitness for heaven, we must never expect to be admitted into it. You see, that's not work salvation he's talking about. No, that is William Burkett understanding what James talks about, that faith without works is dead. Holiness matters. That's how the Bible speaks. And so look at this, not to be discouraged, but I look at this as an encouragement to look to that day and to use the lens of that day and the lens of the coming of our great Savior to to want to change more, to want to grow more in holiness. I think these are great opportunities that the sweet fragrance of Christ would diffuse more and more into this culture. That's exciting. That's what we're called to do. It is a blessing to take these obligations and transform ourselves for the glory of his name and for the furtherance of the kingdom. Now that brings me to the second point, verse 12 Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The word for looking for is fairly rare, but it's used three times in these verses. Verse 12, 13, and 14 all use that identical Greek word. The idea isn't just, oh, look for, I'm aware it's coming. No, as one commentator said, it is busying oneself earnestly about a thing. Are you busying yourself about the day of the Lord? Do you get up and run your day with complete disregard of it? Or does it kind of become that that compass by which you navigate your life? Oh, and I know as believers, when you think of the brokenness that I see in this world and the hardships you maybe are experiencing yourself, I long for that day. I don't know if you do, but I sure long for it when the wars will cease. It will be the end of backstabbing. It will be the end of lies. It will be the end of deception. It will be the end of cancers and chronic pains. Do our hearts not long for that day when we will look to see our Savior and that every knee, even the ones that today disregard Him, then they will bow before Him. Oh, that great day. Think about that day. will be the end of indwelling sins. It will be the end of hatred. It will be the end of slander. It will be the end of gossip. It will be the end of doubts. And we will then be fully rid of selfishness. 
And to think on that day, we will have an unmixed love for Jesus Christ. There will be no crevice of darkness in it because he's transforming us to his likeness. All will be an ocean of purity. All purity, all love, all favor for our God. The riches of Christ on that day will be fully embraced, even though he's an ocean of riches and we can never fully embrace our God. One of the uh, Puritans, Jonathan Edwards, he wrote this. He said, then of heaven, all are united with one mind to breathe forth with their whole soul in love, their eternal father and to Jesus Christ, their common head. We will have perfect unity in heaven. Oh, hasten that day. William Burkett, again, that commentator, he says this about that. Oh, Christian, long intensely for Christ's company, for no assuredly he longs for thine. That's encouraging. Now we get to a very controversial word, the word hastening or hasting, spudo in the Greek. It sounds like speed, spudo. This word is only used six times in the New Testament. It means to press on, to urge on, or to hasten that day. Now, if you look in the margin of our authorized version, it says to uh, hasting the coming. Now, the idea is this, and if you're listening well, you'll see why this could be very controversial. Christians, it is by our holy lives for the advance of the gospel that we actually accelerate or speed up, spudo, the advent or the coming of that day. Now that's, that's very controversial. We cause that day to come more quickly. Now if your theological error flags are being raised right now, you're thinking that's not right. Rabbinical Jewish tradition had a similar understanding. They said this, If thou keepest this precept, thou hastenest the day of Messiah. So this is deep in Jewish understanding. Now R.C. Sproul, some of us might really like what he says, and he says this. He says, Oh yeah, we are certainly encouraged to exert such effort, holiness. But I guarantee that all the labor of our hands is not able to change the day that God has appointed from the foundations of the world. And I agree with him. We can't change that. In fact, in Acts 17.31, it says this, he hath appointed a day, he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Now, that's not all Sproul says, because then he says this, I do not know why Peter says this or what he meant by it. So Sproul just throws up the white flag on this one. He's He's confused. <laughs> I understand. So how do we understand this word that we hasten the day of the Lord? Now remember, we've got to look in the context here. In verse 10. Because in verse 10, we saw that the apparent delay of the day of the Lord was peculiar to the Lord being long-suffering to draw in his elect. And if you want to revisit that sermon, by all means, do that. It's online. But I'm not going to re-preach that. But I will say that's what's holding it back, the drawing in of the elect. And so the long-suffering of God, his, his being extremely patient with this dark world, it will hold until the full ingathering of all his elect. And then the day will come. 
So what's holding it back? Salvation of all of God's elect. And therefore, as one commentator put it, Christians then hasten that day. We speed it up by completing through repentance and holiness the work of the gospel. And thus we diminish the need for the long-suffering of God, right? Because if all of the elect are gathered in, the day can come. Now, you might be with Sproul on this one. And you're thinking, that day is fixed from all eternity. It cannot be a moving target. I agree. True. And we did see that. Peter already made that case, kind of in verse 8, when we saw days as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. God transcends time. He is not subject to time. He's over time. So there's no way that our actions in time impinge on God's sovereignty over time. So Sproul is absolutely right. However... It is not uncommon in the Bible for God's actions, him who is sovereign, to have symmetry. Remember that word from math. To have symmetry with our actions. For example, in Matthew 13, 58, listen to the symmetry as we compare two gospel accounts of the same incident. It says there that Jesus did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So humans' unbelief was the reason Jesus didn't do many mighty works in that city. The same incident in Mark is a little different. Listen carefully. And he could do there no mighty works, except that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Here he didn't do it because he saw how hard their hearts were. In Mark, he couldn't do it. And you think, well, God is sovereign. Of course he could do. He could heal anybody any minute. So what's the issue? The issue is this. God has purposed that through the secondary means of humans, you and me, hastening that day, through our prayers, through our obedience, through the faithful preaching of the gospel, believers are instruments of speeding up that day. And this is exactly what we say, see, sorry, when we pray, thy kingdom come. Why would we pray it if it's coming anyway? Why would we pray if the day is already fixed? We pray it because God works through the means of the church pleading on its knees, God, come, Jesus, come. You see, if the church sat on its hands and did nothing and was not active, the elect would not be gathered in. God worked through means. He worked through instruments. And we are those instruments. So get this, what we do matters. And Peter is sometimes accenting, like in verse 8, the sovereignty of God over time. And here he is accenting or weighting our responsibility in light of that. You see, it's a package deal. All of them must hold. This means hasting and being holy is patient, but it is also productive. We must and we ought to be working for the advance of the kingdom of God in every area. We heard it this morning. There's not one square inch over this world over which Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, does not say, mine, I own it. So let us bring those crowned rights of Jesus Christ into this world and herald that sovereign king. Now notice 
back to our text here, that Peter says, looking for in hasting, unto the coming of the day of God. That is the only place in the entire scriptures where it's called the day of God. Before he called it the day of the Lord. That's more common. Why does he now link it with the day of God? I believe it is because Peter is linking together the lordship of Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son, Jesus, and his divinity. This is a strong proof text for the divinity, the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in our culture, many people will say, well, you know what? It was a great day for such and so, this person, when perhaps they achieved a great sports victory. Perhaps Connor McDavid had his day because it was such an awesome game he had. For great political wins, we will say, oh, such and so politician had a great day. It was their day. Well, believe me, that day will be unmistakably God's day. The splendor of Jesus Christ will be manifest. There will be no holding back. He came the first time veiling his glory. Then full radiance, full splendor, unquestionable might. There will be no disputing his power as he destroys his enemies and delivers his children. And that brings me to the final point, the third point, expectant response wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. So the question before us in verse 13 is this. So what happens to the old heavens and earth and how does that relate to the new heavens and earth? And I said last sermon I was going to deal with that now and I realized I could have been five sermons so I'm going to squish together this concept in the last point and there's a lot more that could be said. So the question is really... Is everything going to be annihilated, vaporized, or are things going to be renewed? How did the old and the new relate? Well, first of all, let's just look at the text carefully. It literally says in the Greek, the day of God comes, on account of which the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved. You see, the first thing Peter stresses is that the dissolving of all things are on account of God. So there's no such thing that we can say, oh, it's a heat death. It's just scientific. It was going to happen that way. No, no, no. Peter's like, no, God's coming accounts for the dissolution of all things. Secondly, we must remember that as one commentator said, If the plan of God is to be carried out, this sin-stained world must perish. It's because of sin, the curse that has infected like a toxin, like a stain, every dimension of creation. And the burning then is more like we see in the Old Testament, a purging burning, not an annihilating burning. Whatever is burnt is for the sake of ridding evil and promoting righteousness. Turn with me, please, to Malachi chapter 4. If you know where Matthew is, just one before. Malachi 4 verse 1. For behold, the day cometh. That shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave 
them neither root nor branch. Now notice, first of all, burning associated with wickedness, which is sinfulness. So that's what needs to be purged. Secondly, look at the next verse. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Again, the language of righteousness as opposed to wickedness. And it arises with healing. So there's something that the righteousness of God does to heal and to take away the the filth and to cleanse. So that's Old Testament anchors. Third, this gets a little technical, so put on your thinking hats. Verse 10, we saw the word melt in there. And if you look in verse 12, you see the same thing. It says, the elements shall melt. And in verse 12, it says, the elements shall melt. That's the authorized version. They aren't the same Greek words, though. I don't know why they translated both as melt. I can't ask them, so we just accept that they did. But they're not the same word. In fact, the word for melt in verse 10 is luo. It's the same one as dissolved in verse 12. Everything will be loosened, destroyed. But the, verse, the word in verse 12 to melt is only used here in the entire Bible. It's very unique. And Peter applies it interestingly. Now, first of all, what does the word melt, that one-time used word, actually mean? It means, literally, to make liquid, to liquefy, as if you were liquefying snow or metal. Now, what happens when you liquefy something? You make it fit for a different use. Especially think here of iron ore that would pass through the blazing furnace and they would melt it and the melting would allow them to turn the product into instruments for better use, i.e. spears, fishing hooks, instruments of iron, pots, pans, all kinds of stuff, useful things. And it seems that the language that Peter is borrowing by using that word liquefying is used so to place it into a state of getting rid of the dirt, the filth, but also to reshape it. And that's why I don't think we're talking about annihilation, but renewal, reappropriation. Now, fourthly, notice what gets melted in the text. It's very specific. It's very interesting. The elements. Do you remember from last sermon what I argued the elements were? Sun, moon, and stars. And what did I say about the elements? Why are they specifically mentioned? It is because the sun, moon, and stars in man's wickedness get worshipped to appeal to the supernatural powers, the heavenly powers that man would then use. And then they were looking for demonic powers and they'd look for cultic powers and occultic powers. And there's a particular emphasis of the dissolving of those elements. And I think it's interesting that in the new heaven and the new earth, there's one thing that's specified. What gives light? God. No more sun, moon, and stars. There's no question anymore to look to the supernatural beings. We look to the only, the sovereign supernatural. That's interesting. But I do think that the specific melting, liquefying of the sun, moon, and stars is stated because God is judging the supernatural realm. And we know this is true from the Bible. Psalm 82 says this, verse 6 and 8. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. He's referring here to the Elohim, the high beings. 
the supernatural beings. And then he says this, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. And then it ends like this, arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. And so God will dissolve and liquefy, as it were, the supernatural power through the melting of the elements so that it will be clear that he inherits all the nations. There's a lot that could be said there. That's a very interesting point. Here's the summary of that. All the influences of sin and the powers that compete for worship will be dissolved. And Christ will terminally end any usurping, any undermining, and he will inherit all things. That is what the day of the Lord will bring. Now the other side. The new heavens and new earth. Verse 13. Nevertheless, we according to his promise look for the new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Notice that as Peter switches from the old to the new, he affirms the Old Testament anchors of the expectation of the new heavens and new earth. Because what does he say? According to his promise. He wants our minds to go back to all the promises of the new heavens and new earth. But the other interesting thing here is that when he talks about the new heavens and new earth, he uses one of two Greek words. He could have used the word neos, where we get neo from, neo-Calvinism, neo-Orthodoxy, new, 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 new. That's neo. We know that word. He doesn't use that word. He uses a different Greek word. He uses the word kainos. Kainos in the Greek doesn't mean new in time, like neo does. It means of a new kind, of a new quality. It's almost like it's saying something fresh in contrast with something that is exhausted. And that is how the new heavens are described, not as new in time, but new in quality, better, better, fresh. The problem is not the age of the earth. The problem is the condition of the earth. It's moral decay. And that's why we see the new heavens described with that kind of language. When we combine all of this teaching from Peter with the Apostle Paul, we see something really interesting. And that will kind of wrap this whole thing together. Turn with me, please, to Romans 8. Romans 8, verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creature, that's the rest of creation, waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. That's the curse. When the curse came on all of creation, it wasn't as if the rest of creation was interested in that, but with man's fall, so fell everything else. But by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So in what he's actually saying that when this all happened, God actually was anticipating or preparing liberty. Because it says, the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travaileth in pain together until now. They're like birth pangs. The curse as it's 
riveting this planet and bringing all of the tornadoes and floods and fires and difficulties and the strains on the animal kingdom. It is because of the curse, but their birth pangs for something else. There's an expectation that all of creation has for something new. And that is interesting because, again, he's not going to annihilate then creation. He's going to renew creation, just like he does with us. Are we going to be bodiless creatures in heaven? No, he's going to renew our bodies, give us new bodies. Did Christ destroy us? No, he saved us. Did Christ eliminate our beings? No, he will renew our beings after his image. And all of that resurrection Christ, Paul anchors in who? Jesus. As we are united to Jesus, the first fruits, his new life becomes our new life. And internally, the believer is already a new creature, even though the old is fading away and our bodies are fading away. And all of creation, because of what we experience in our union with Christ, is going to one day see that same renewal. It is not going to be annihilated, but renovated. As it partook with the curse, it will participate in the redemption. It is almost as if, you know when the Bible talks about the Jordan River flooding her banks? It's almost as if the dry lands that get that water is like the new creational life of Jesus spilling over richly to all of creation and renewing the whole thing. In fact, the Apostle Peter writes this letter, but when he speaks to the Jews in Acts 3, he says this. He says, we are waiting for the times of the restitution of all things which God has promised. What does this mean? It means Satan will not win by so corrupting the earth that it has to be completely wiped, completely annihilated, as if God wants nothing to do with this. No, we know that's not the case because he entered into corrupt creation to renew it, to save it, to bring it to a heightened life. In fact, in Revelation 21, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, it says this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And then this almost enigmatic statement, it says, And there was no more what? Sea. Why the sea? Because the sea was the place of chaos. It was the place of destruction. It, it represented everything disorderly. And God says, I'm going to wipe all the disorderly from the map. And we will have a renewed creation. No more chaos. No more disorder. Now, if you're thinking through this, what are the implications? You might wonder, okay, how then, if every, all the elements are going to get dissolved, but there will be some form of renewal, how then does what we do in culture relate to the future new creation? Does it really matter what I do in culture? Does it really matter if I'm involved in politics? Does it really matter how I parent my children outside of just making sure they're saved? Does it matter that we build our farms, our businesses? Does it matter that we try to build a, build a better society? All these are questions that are real. Because if you think, well, it's all going to get torched and there's absolutely no continuity, we have a problem. Then we just better whisk everybody away out of that mess. Abraham Kuyper, the the Dutch theologian from 1900, he said this. He said, Not a single human writing, not a single human work of art will transfer from the existing situation into the new. He understands that word, melt and dissolved. But then he says this. 
Oh, no, he first says this. He says, like a tulip in the winter. He says, so the life of common grace will perish. You seen a tulip in the winter? It dies. But then he taught this. And I think he's got something here. He says, but as the tulip bulbs are safely stored until winter passes, so the germ of this common grace of everything we do out there will be replanted and will blossom all the more. And I think he just captures in that the death, the destruction of the tulip, as it were, but the germ underneath in the bulb will be retained and will be replanted to do bigger and better. Anthony Hookham, another theologian, said it this way. He says this, Through our kingdom service, the building materials for that new earth are now being gathered. That's why hasting the day matters. Bibles are being translated. Peoples are being evangelized. Believers are being renewed. And cultures are being transformed. And then he says this, and I think he's right. Only eternity will reveal the full significance of what has been done for Christ here. It matters. It matters. But only in eternity will we find out what that will look like. Our impact on culture matters. There's one Bible verse that I'm going to leave with you to think about that before we draw our final conclusions. And that is this. Revelation 14, 13 says this, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. That's how a lot of people talk about heaven. It's rest, spiritual rest. I will finally be at rest. But John adds this little phrase that we hardly think about. And their works do follow them. But you do hear for his kingdom will follow you into glory. Just think about that. Let that just stew in your head for a while. And we see, therefore, putting it all together, that Peter gives us the answer as to what the renewal is. He says, wherein dwelleth righteousness, because there we will be in perfect agreement with God's will. It will always be done, never subverted. There will be no sin Oh, people, consider the day of God, please. How will that day find you? How will it find you, young people, that have sat in church so many times? How is that day going to find you? Will you be found perfect in Christ or soiled in your own sin? What sentence will come upon you? Because you will be sentenced at some level. A judgment will come either acquittal or condemning, condemnation. There's only one way to be saved, and we know that is through faith in Jesus Christ as his righteousness is applied to the believer. Oh, how we must consider, as we consider that day, consider Christ even more. For all of those believers who trust him, know this, that it will be your Savior who will make the judgment. It will be your Savior who knows your weaknesses and your infirmities. It is your Savior who will judge you, who also bled for you. And therefore, believers, for us, it is a day of great joy. Whatever sins we may think I have committed here that could bar me from heaven, know this, believers already today possess the heart of the judge. He loves them. 
Oh yeah, now we are frail in sin, crippled by mixed motives and desires. But ours in Jesus Christ is a holiness that has been covenanted to us freely by Christ, who is altogether holy. Our judge is our redeemer. And so let us press on to holiness. Let us hasten the day of his return. And let us hope eagerly for the promise of the renewal of all things. I will close here with Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you for the richness, the, uh, the many teachings that all point us to your great purposes. And Lord, I pray that we would go out from here believing even the more that what we do here matters, that we are, um, where, when we build for your kingdom, it bears eternal fruit. Oh God, be glorified, we pray, in our, in our sinful state, but in our saved state in Jesus Christ. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.